0: So keep your ears open for those. A few of us in this room remember Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, released back in 1970. A few. Um, Some of us remember the Thief in the Night movie series, as well as Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Both were popular in the late 70s, early 80s, so a few more of us, many of us in this room, maybe most of us, at least those born before 2000, remember uh, the left-behind phenomenon that took the church by storm over a 12-year period from 1995 to 2007, Uh, The book series included 16 books, both in adult and children format, and I subjected my family to all 16 uh, via CD, uh, as we would travel back and forth from Colorado. Uh, uh, Books uh, number seven and eight reached uh, number one on the bestseller list. Book 10 actually started on the bestseller list uh, at number one, debuted there. Uh, 65 million copies of those books were sold. And the late Jerry Falwell, in referring to the first book of this series, said this, in terms of its impact on Christianity, it's probably greater than any other book in modern times outside the Bible. Um, a very sad indictment, if in fact true. Uh, the series spawned two trilogies, uh, a movie trilogy, had uh, three movies starring, it was surprisingly successful, uh, three movies by, uh, starring Kirk Cameron And it also spurred on a video trilogy, three video games, uh, the first of which was accused of encouraging religious violence, but of course those that created the game pushed back and said there really wasn't any violence, there was just conflict, and that while soldiers and weapons were available, it wouldn't take long before game players would realize that weapons and soldiers were less effective uh, were are a uh, less effective means of warfare than prayer and worship because our battle is actually spiritual. And if players shot non-believers, <laughs> instead of converting them, it would cost them spirit points, which could be recovered if you pause to pray. I kid you not. That actually happened. <laughs> And when it was all said and done, in the midst of all that, I think we have to admit that it was a culturally significant phenomenon. It had a great effect on those around us, but sadly in the end it was, dare I say, nothing more than a money-making franchise centered around end-time predictions that were based solely on speculation. And conjecture that was the result of poor, exegetical, and rampant, isegetical interpretation of several biblical texts, including the text that we find ourselves in tonight. And just like that last week, to clear up, as well as every week, the way um, to clear up interpretive problems is with Context. It's all about context. Don't get me wrong, this is a very difficult passage. It's a difficult passage to interpret. Our confession says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. And this text falls into that category. We admit that going in. But our confession also says this, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scripture is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So as difficult as this text might be, it is a text that we can understand with a little effort and with a great deal of help um, by the Spirit. And so as we always do, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump in this evening, all right? Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? Would you grant all of us spiritual eyes and ears that we need to apprehend and appraise the truth regarding these words of Christ as well as his gospel? Awaken our attention Would you convict us and would you challenge us and then would you, as you always do, would you come along and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us? I'm unfit for this task as always, so would you please attend to me as I do this work to which you've called me and would you grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening? that I might do something good for you and for your people. And I pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, in this version of the Olivet Discourse that Luke records for us, he says that Jesus and some of the disciples are walking along and they're marveling at the temple. They're marveling... um, at this building that they only see once a year. They would see it as they travel once a year from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. And every year they would come, they would have that same uh, marvel about them because the the building was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary piece of architecture. It had um, massive marbleized stones. There were gold plates and jewel, uh, jewel clusters on the walls. They were marveling at the valuable gifts and offerings that were being presented there and that were used as decor. And every year that they would come, they were never ceased. They never ceased to be amazed. And the same was the case as they're walking along with him. And Jesus knows that. He understands that marvel, and he sees it in them, and he hears it in their voices. And so he, he understands that this is the last, one of the last opportunities one of the last teaching moments that he's going to have with them. And he takes that opportunity, and he looks at them and says this, as for these things that you see, as these things that you're marveling at, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, there's going to come a day, the day is coming when this magnificent structure, this as massive it as was going to be completely that that massive magnificent sco, uh, structure was going to be completely destroyed it was going to be raised r a z e d to the ground never to be raised r a i s e d from the ground again it was going to be completely destroyed it would cease to exist And this obviously, obviously led to a couple of questions. And what's interesting is the questions aren't, why do you say that? Or the question isn't, how in the world is that going to happen? The questions are, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And the reason or the explanation for why they asked the questions that they asked will help us understand how Jesus actually answered. You see, Jesus had said an event was going to take place. One event was going to take place. And that singular event would signify the end of an age. It was an age in which the temple was the the center, the focal point, the heart and soul of Israel and and, and represented its covenant with the Lord God. It was the place in which God dwelt. It was the place in which the sacrifices for sins were made. It was also a visible link to history, and not just back to David and Solomon, but all the way back to Abraham, because it sat upon the spot where Abraham had offered Isaac. This was a significant structure. It was their religious center. It was their political center. It was the center of who they were as a people. It was the center, and it represented and identified them as a people, as a nation. And so that explains why the disciples asked about these things plural. Jesus has spoken about thing, and they're asking about things. Why would they ask about things? Things. Because to them, the end of the temple wouldn't just mean the end of an age. The end of the temple would mean the end of the ages. Because for them, as we've talked about throughout the study of this gospel, for them, the Messiah's arrival meant a complete and immediate reboot For them, when He entered Jerusalem, He would lead the overthrow of Rome. He would rightfully ascend to His plane to be a delay. And He would return Israel to its full and final place of prominence and greatness. And so the only way to talk about the destruction of the temple would be that this must be the end of all things. But their question simply reveal once again that they're not fully comprehending what Jesus has been saying for so long now. They didn't completely understand what he had been teaching as they were making their way to Jerusalem. So Jesus has to untangle what's going on in their minds. Jesus has to, has to separate some things. You know, don't get me wrong, the end of the temple... And the, and the end of Jerusalem are, in the words of Scottish pastor James Foote, in, uh, intimately and inseparably connected to the end of the ages. However, the two should not be conflated. The two should not become one. The former points to the latter, right? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, as we've been pointing out, points forward to that ultimate judgment. And Jesus answers in this light. Listen to this larger quote from Pastor Foote. He says, Upon the whole, it seems to be the most correct method of interpretation to expound the greater part of this chapter, primarily and directly of Christ's providential coming at the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Not forgetting, however, that we have therein an emblem or a symbol of the personal coming at the judgment of the great day, and that the description of the latter event is interwoven or at least intimately uh, inseparably connected with that of the former, some of the verses being applicable only to the former event while the latter, but many of them, I'm sorry, many of them being equally applicable to both, while the latter event is more and more clearly pointed to as we get on towards the close of the passage. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem intertwined with the, the last judgment and, and the end of the ages. There are, there are verses here that are applicable only to the former, only to. Jerusalem in the temple, and there are others that are applicable to both. And we have to to work at it, which is what we're gonna do over this week and in two weeks. It's gonna take two weeks. Part one is tonight. I'm calling this the end, the beginning of the end. It's gonna take two weeks. This week is part one. We'll look, Lord, and it's at part two the week after Easter. Our outline is not what's located in the back of your bulletin. It's different, okay? We're not looking at three points. We're looking only at two, so you can mark those out. Two points are this. We're going to look at the end of an age, A-N-A-G-E, an age, and the second point is we're going to look at the end of of the age or the ages, okay? The end of an age, the end of the age or the ages. So let's begin with the first, the end of an age. Questions are these. Remember, we've got to remember the questions. What are they? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things happen? And truth be told, Jesus never answers the when question. Right? We want Him to, but He doesn't. He doesn't give a specific time and date. He doesn't say, mark your calendars, because this is all going down on April 10th. But He did answer the sign question. And notice He didn't instruct them to look for the sign or signs. He didn't tell them to be preoccupied with the sign or signs. He simply gave them the signs. And He gave both general signs and He gave a specific sign. And before He gave them the signs, however, He, he warned them of those who were going to come and claim to not only speak for Him, but to claim to be Him. He said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. He knew at the moment after his resurrection and ascension that people were going to rise up and begin to teach falsely about him and about his message. They were even going to begin to claim to be him themselves and seek to lure people away. They were going to claim to be the Messiah, and he says, look, ignore them. Don't listen to them. All they want to do is deceive you. They want to trick you. They want to lead you down a path that you don't need to go. What I'm about to say is all you need to know. And if I haven't said it here, you don't need to know it. This is what you need. I, if, if there's anything else, if there would be anything else, I would tell you. And then having said that, Having warned them, he then begins to share the signs in verse 9. He said, before the temple is destroyed, you're going to hear of wars and tumults. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But even before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. By all, for my name's sake. But he doesn't leave them there. He's gracious and merciful. And after he's listed those signs that that, that overwhelm more than likely, I, I I would think, obviously, overwhelm them. He doesn't leave them there in a state of fear and distress. And he says this don't be terrified. I know, I know what I just said, but don't be terrified. For these things must take place, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." In other words, listen, don't let any of this surprise you. And don't be scared. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be preoccupied with it. You don't have to wring your hands in regards to what it is you might say when you're called upon to profess your faith in me and give a defense for what you believe. Take a deep breath. The Spirit will give you words to say, and no one's going to be able to argue with you. They may try to argue with you, and they may even argue with you, but their argument will hold no water. And while they may harm you physically, while, they may, while you may even lose your homes, while you may lose your jobs, while you may lose your family, and you may even, you're going to lose your friends, you may even lose your life, they are not going to be able to harm you spiritually. By enduring, he says, by persevering in your faith to the end, you will be saved. And brothers and sisters, all of this happened prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Listen to these words from one commentator. Nation did rise against nation. To be specific, there was a Jewish insurrection against Rome that began in A.D. 66 and finally led to the destruction of Jerusalem. He said there were great earthquakes, such as the powerful tremor across Phrygia in A.D. 61 and the powerful earthquake at Pompeii two years later. There were famines in various places during the reign of the Roman emperor Claudius and then again under Nero. There were also cosmic signs in the heavens like the comet shaped like a sword recorded by Josephus. And of course, we know of from passages like Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 12 and 16, 17, 24 and 25, that the apostles and the disciples were persecuted. They were taken before religious and civil authorities. They faced imprisonment. And some, like Stephen and James and even Paul, died all before A.D. 70. But then in verse 20, he says, but from general signs to one very specific sign. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation Has come near. In other words, he said, All these other signs, right, all these other signs are going to precede the destruction of the temple. But when you see armies surrounding the city, know that the end of the temple and the city as a whole is at hand. And then he said, When you see that, flee, flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart, and let those not and let not those who are out in the country enter in. In other words, don't be near Jerusalem. Don't come near the city. If you're inside, get out, and if you're outside, don't even come near it. Why? He says, For these are days of vengeance. To fulfill all that is written. Now Luke doesn't go into the details. Uh, like Matthew and, and Mark do, because remember, Luke's readers are not Jewish. And so there would have been some details that would have been lost on them, that wouldn't have been that important to them. But we do know from Matthew and Mark that the desolation that Jesus is referring to was a reference to the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 12. And most of, Ju- most of the Jews in, in, that, in that prophecy Uh, refers to the uh, defilement and and, um, and, and the profaning of the temple. And most of the Jews at that time would have uh, believed that this prophecy, because it had been fulfilled in 168 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes put up a pagan altar in the midst of the temple. So when they hear Jesus saying this, they know that what he's saying is that the prophecy that has already been fulfilled is going to be fulfilled again. They knew that he was, and they also knew that he was speaking of judgment to come. And, of course, we know from, again, we've been in this, if you're, if you're a guest with us, I'm sorry, you've missed our study. So, but over the course of our study, we know that that judgment was coming because Israel had forsaken the covenant, they, had, uh, they were now under its covenant curses, and the temple had been defiled. So listen to these words from Pastor Kim Riddlebarger. He says, the sad reality was that the people of Israel had long since lost sight of the object of faith, not the temple itself, but that to which the temple pointed, which was Yahweh and His throne in heaven. Jesus believed the temple had become a stumbling block. He goes on to say the temple and its sacrifices were intended to point the people of Israel to the coming Messiah and His redemptive work. But once Jesus had come and proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, the temple was even then being rendered obsolete because the true temple had come in His very person. Ironically, the temple, He says, now stood in the way of Israel embracing Jesus as the Messiah. Once Jesus had come, the temple was obsolete. It had served its purpose. And the destruction or or the judgment that was about to come was going to be severe. He says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. I mean, you were waiting for him to, to kind of finish that statement. What's going to happen? He doesn't have to. He's, alas, I mean, we know this is not good. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And I read this a few weeks ago, but it's, it really fits here as well. In regard to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it was written by Josephus. He says, while the holy house was on fire, everything was plundered that came at hand, came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there commiseration of any age or any reference of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner so that this war went around all sorts of men and brought them to destruction. One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. But the soldiers went over heaps of these bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. I read, read in several places where there was enough blood to put out fires. And Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews were killed. 97,000 were captured. Some think that he's exaggerating, but even if he's exaggerating a little bit, the true number of both is staggering at what took place. Fortunately, he and other historians also record that Christians heeded the warning. Christians heard the warning and having listened when the armies began encircling, the Roman armies began encircling around Jerusalem in 66 AD. They left running for the hills, particularly to a city called Pella, where they found refuge. It was a dramatic and devastating end of an age. And that brings us to the second point. The end of the age or the ages. Remember what Pastor Foote said. Some of these verses were applicable only to the temple as well as the end of the ages. Verse 20, to the middle of 24 verses 20 to the middle of 24, were very specific about the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and only applicable to that event. But in verses 9 to 19, they were or are more general. And while they were all in fact fulfilled prior to 70 AD, they continue to be applicable for us today. There's a what's called a double fulfillment. Notice at the end of verse 9, Jesus says, but the end will not be at once. Jesus is, again, separating what the, the disciples had conflated. He was saying that the destruction of the temple and the end of the world were not the same thing. And the destruction of the temple would simply be, as he's talking with them, the the destruction of the temple would simply be the beginning of the end. And that beginning would actually point to the end, as we've been talking about all along. The judgment experienced by Israel in, in regards to the temple in Jerusalem actually pointed to the ultimate judgment that would take place at the end of the ages. But at this particular point, as we've said, that the disciples weren't going to get that. They weren't going to completely understand that because any talk of the second coming was going to be lost on them because it wouldn't be clear to them until after his death and resurrection that we're still a few days off. But for you and I, on this side of the cross, we understand. Again, going back to Matthew and Mark, both record Jesus... Concluding the sharing of the general signs with this statement, he says, All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, ladies, I don't need to tell you anything about birth pains. And for those of you that were fortunate, gentlemen that were fortunate enough to be in the delivery room, I don't have to tell you anything about them, but we all know that they are intermittent at first, but then they become pretty regular. And they grow more and more regular as time passes, and they also grow more and more intense over time until you give birth. And so he's saying that these general signs were going to be intermittent at first. They were going to become more regular as time went by. They were going to grow more intense as time, grew, as time went by until the end of the ages. In other words, the general signs, again, that were fulfilled prior to A.D. 70 are are also being fulfilled as we wait today. And what are we waiting for? What is it that we're waiting for? And we find that at the end of verse 24. We're waiting for the time between the two advents of Christ, His first and second coming, to be complete. We're awaiting the gospel age to come to a conclusion. And notice, well, hear these words again from Ken Ritterbarger that I shared with you yesterday on Realm. He says, Jesus, notice that Jesus does not tell the disciples as they wait for the end of the ages, as they, as they wait for the end of the gospel age, he does not tell them to expect the rapture, nor does he teach that there will be some golden age upon the earth either before or after his return. We will see, again, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, in part two, that he's telling the disciples to expect, at the end of the ages, to expect the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, they're to to expect the Messiah's return. They're to expect his return. He does not tell them to expect the rebuilding of the temple. Why? Because Jesus is the true temple. And brothers and sisters, you and I as believers in Christ, we are living stones. In the words of Peter and Paul, we are living stones that are being built into a more beautiful and magnificent, those are my words, more beautiful and magnificent structure, temple. And we're being built upon the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus is our cornerstone. Notice he doesn't He doesn't tell them to expect the restoration of Jerusalem to its earthly glory. Why? Because John says, on the day of Christ's return, the heavenly Jerusalem is going to descend from above. And the new heavens and the new earth are going to be be established. And all of that will mark the end of the ages. And the beginning of the of the everlasting kingdom So what do we take away Two things um, both are have a couple of points within them First is this we should be ready and we should not be led astray As we wait speculation conjecture predictions do not become followers of Christ Christ has told us what we need to know in regard to life in the already and not yet as well as the end to come he didn't share what he shared in order for us to speculate but in order that we might be certain and rest The fact that what He said about the temple in Jerusalem, as well as the fact of what He said about His death and resurrection, because they all happened as He said it would, should give us assurance and hope that what He has said about our lives in this time in which we are waiting, between His first and second coming and and the everlasting kingdom that has come, everything is true as well. And in the time during the already and not yet, we too are going to hear We're going to hear of and experience wars. Nation will continue to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. We're going to hear of earthquakes. We're going to hear of tornadoes and fires and other natural disasters, famines, diseases, guarantee of the final outcome the return of Jesus to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. Praise the Lord. And not only will those signs continue, but persecution will grow. And we don't get this, like our brothers and sisters around the world get this, but Paul does say that those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. That is a promise. And as we progress and as we move forward, that persecution will be at the hands of the religious. It will be at the hands of the non-religious. It's happening right now. In that same way, it will be at the hands, and it is at at the hands of and will be at the hands of the visible church, as well as the civil magistrate. It has been, is, and will continue to happen at the hands of coworkers, and friends, and family, and neighbors, and people have, are, and will lose their homes, lose their jobs, lose their families, and even lose their lives. It happens every day, and we're naive to think that it will not ever happen to us. And notice at the end of verse 12, the persecution will come for the sake of Christ's name. That doesn't give us a license to be offensive and abrasive as we possibly can. But it does mean that catering to particular groups or capitulating to the culture as far as our morals and ethics and values are concerned or catapulting our convictions and our doctrine out the window for the sake of being liked by the world is nonsensical. Because in the end, it's not going to matter what we say or do in order to be liked or embraced by the culture, striving for relevance and acceptance is going to be short-lived, it's going to be futile, because no matter how much they like us in the beginning, ultimately they're going to turn, as long as we continue to proclaim Christ as Lord and the Savior of sinners. But here's the good news. With every event, with every circumstance, with every fulfillment of every sign, we have the opportunity to bear witness, bear witness to Christ and His gospel. We get to. They are opportunities. And. We can go into those opportunities without any fear because He will give us the words to say, the right words at the right time. We just need to be ready. And secondly, we need to be confident and remain steadfast. While the signs must take place, again, we should not fear. We are called to persevere to the end. And we have assurance of that perseverance because we are being preserved. A faithful father has called us. A faithful son has laid down his life for us. A faithful spirit has sealed us and has filled us The God who has saved us, the triune God that has saved us, holds us in the palm of His hand, and we will not be lost. We should not, therefore, lose hope. We should not be afraid. We should not give up. The promise is sure. To those who endure to the end, they will be saved. Thanks be to God for that hope and that assurance. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard Your Word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.